EMSradio.com. EMS information for the next generation. The EMS Garage is a production of EMSradio.com. You can find us on Facebook. Just search EMS Garage. You can find us on Twitter at EMS Garage. Email us, emsgarage at gmail.com. Or call us, 303-720-6001. The EMS Scratch. Yeah, you know, we've taken a little hiatus. Sorry. What can I say? We sometimes like to do that here on the garage. I have a lot of podcasts I could actually push out to you people, but um, I quite honestly haven't had a lot of time, so I'm sorry. But you know what? Tonight we're going to actually talk about some really cool topics, and we've got two of the most prolific podcasters that I know. Well, at least in my world. and uh, But I'm happy to have them. If, in case you're wondering, I'm Chris Monteria, the Geeky Medic. And we're back to kick off our holiday season with some fun times and probably some more fun gadgets and talking about EMS and talking about all the crazy things that go on in our world and maybe even editorializing a little bit, a little bit. So if, you, if you're wondering, you can find me on all the websites, Facebook, Twitter, everything in between. Uh, geeky medic. Unfortunately, I haven't been on them very much recently because I've been very, like I said, very, very busy. Uh, but I hope to get back to it very soon. Social media escapes me when I literally am on the phone every day, all day. So sorry about that, but we will, I promise we will get back to you. And we have some exciting announcements coming up tonight that I'm personally happy about. And, uh, which is why I've been kind of busy. So we'll talk about those in one minute. But first, let me introduce my esteemed panel of two, plus me, which makes three. Mr. James Warmoth. Hello, sir. Hello, Chris. Hey, and you got into your new house. I did. It took, it took about two months longer than I planned, but I finally did. Yes, sir. Did I almost tell you that? I almost said, you know, don't expect be exactly on schedule because those those crazy construction guys go well you know i think i can have a house for you and like you know know. the problem came in with the finished contractors Uh that's where the problem yeah because they're always like kind of anal and they show up when they want to and yeah. Well, the the show up when they want to part was particularly true. The 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 anal about detail not so much. <laughs> we had problems with that. But yeah. Oh. I'm sure everybody's familiar with things like that. Yeah, unfortunately yeah. And you can get good ones and bad ones and then you just get the like the 98% of the rest of them where you're like, "Oh my gosh, please." So I understand. I get it, man. I've worked with contractors a long time. I get it. So, but hey, I'm glad you're on tonight. I'm glad you got your headset in and you're here to talk about uh a nightclub owner and Medicare and you're here to talk about why firefighters should maybe not respond to every medical emergency, which is a good which is actually a good article. So, um thanks for coming Absolutely. on. Yep, thanks That's for coming me. on. Also coming 
to us live from the physical therapy finals night at the sorority house, Mr. Scott Keir. Hello. Sorority house, you're close. How are you, sir? Good. I hear your house is full of females, though. Right? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm borrowing a Mac. Set. Oh, yes, you're on a Mac. I love it. And I'm, I'm borrowing some desk space and some Giardelli's chocolate and some wine, and uh, I decided to come on and podcast. For and something. that's how you know you're in a female's house. Because you have a lot of chocolate. But there's a lot yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. A lot of chocolate, a lot of wine, and my back's been cracked by about four different people tonight. So let me tell you, I mean, it's 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 a good night over here. <laughs> so uh, their finals are hands-on, so to speak. Clearly, yes. Excellent. Excellent. And, you, and ap- apparently, you were like, hey, you know, if you need a willing test subject, I'm here. <laughs> well, you know, somebody's got to take one for the team every once in a while. <laughs> uh, well, I'm glad you uh, found time in your crazy schedule to come on and talk to us. And uh, well, you, you know, it's it's been a while, and I've I've kind of been out of the game for a little bit. And I I feel bad about that, but uh, things are things are finally coming back into in, into focus for me, and and I'm ready to start making some more time for all of this. So it's it's good to be back on. Well, I hear you, brother. I, I think we've all been in the same boat. So I'm just glad we're all back. Hey, we're back. So whatever. So our first topic tonight is a local music producer and club owner convicted of multiple federal charges. Apparently, Julian Kimball, 46, has pled guilty to conspiracy to commit Medicare health care fraud, conspiracy to commit money, money laundering, and tax evasion. Yeah, so um, this gentleman, basically from March of 2008 through 2010, owned an ambulance service or ambulance services where they were perhaps doing things that were not ambulance related. They would go out to somebody's house in a sedan, pick them up, transport them to a hospital and charge a BLS call back to Medicare. Hmm. Sounds a little bit like Medicare fraud. They also did a few other things like, uh, then once he got all the money in millions of dollars, he would actually, um, get customers quote unquote, or patients to come into the system and then pay them off to say that they were patients in the system, bill back Medicare and recoup some of the money that he had paid off to the people. So I think over time he made, he apparently billed Medicare for somewhere in the range of, um, $8.7 million of which he, he billed that and he received a $3.6 million, um, $3.6 million back from Medicare. Um, Wow. Is all I have to say. I, I don't even know where to go with this. I mean, this guy is blatantly blowing. I mean, he's he's giving us all a bad name first off because now Medicare and CMS and all those guys are like. So this is why we think that ambulance service is quite frankly one of the problems in the Medicare industry, and we think we can go back and recoup some of the costs. So then they come back at you and kind of crawl up every orifice you have to find any dollar that they think they can find because of people like this guy. Um, it sounds a little mafia to me, but you know, I know you, have you guys had a chance to read the article and what did you guys think? I mean, I, I'm blown away by the amount of boy, the amount of planning that went into it and his ability to basically launder the money from his ambulance services back into a nightclub and then take the profit home and have have a pretty good life. 
I don't understand what it is about Houston, especially especially for me it's close to home because Houston is two hours away. It's one of our primary destinations for interfacility transfers. I don't know what it is about Houston, about being the fraud capital of Texas when it comes to Medicare, but uh, there, there is a lot of talk in our local rack about all the problems with, you know, 30 ambulance services with one medical director all listed at the same address, you know, and things like that. And just f- fraud in Houston is just rampant for some reason. I don't understand what the why it would be there, but it's one of these stories where I look at it and I'm like, well, there's another one. Well, and, and I guess uh, Houston's been a lot in the news a lot. How many of your ambulance services – so Houston has what? Two, okay, and I'm shooting from the hip here. I've heard 250 licensed ambulance services in Houston, some of which may only transport one or two patients a year versus the Houston, the Houston Fire Department, which may transport a lot of patients a year. So am I right or wrong? Have you heard any different? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, t- typically what, what happens with these services is, and, and what's kind of been uncovered is you have one service with about 20 different names. So when one gets busted by the state, they just move to a different name. And then they just keep rotating names. Uh, and we've, they found that a lot of that's been going on. And then also situations where you have, like I said, 30 services all with the same medical director listed with the same physical address. And you go and look and the ambulances have magnetic signs on the side where you can change the logo on the side, you know, just at will. Uh, depending on who, which truck isn't being busted by by Medicare, Medicaid, or, or some other government agency. Well, well, time. Mr. Kimball here owned a Monarch Ambulance, um, which is Tanimi International, doing business as Universal Care, Houston EMS, doing business as Extra Care Inc. and HKO Group Inc. DBA, also doing business as uh, Delta Care EMS. So right there, he's got five groups that's working under basically one Medicare license trying to bill all this back. That, oh my gosh, that's, it's crazy. Well, don't you think that James kind of, kind of nailed it there with, with why this goes on is that people look at these systems and they say, well, you know what? He's doing it and he's getting away with it. So, hey, I might as well jump in there and get on it too. You know what I mean? And I, I think that, that that's where a lot of the, the, the fallout is coming here now is that you, you're having so many people getting busted at once and so many companies getting broken down at once. And, you know, it's, it's so true. This is what makes us look bad. This is why when we go up to the Hill and this is why when we go to our legislature, so we say, Hey, we need more money for Medicare. And they say, what are you kidding me? Look at how much you've already stolen from us. And it's, it, it's people like this that give us a bad name with the politicians and it's it's this is why the industry as a whole suffers. Well, and I and unfortunately, I think Medicare kind of let it run pervasive, basically since the seventies, because they haven't had the ability or the um, I don't know budget to go and investigate this kind of stuff. Now they have investigators coming out the wazoo, and they're going after every dime. And they're going, you know, pretty much we think that all... So I think here's the problem that I have. 
it's kind of swung the pendulum, and it's kind of like an IRS investigation, if you will. If you've ever gone one through through one of those, you're guilty until proven innocent, and it's kind of like the exact opposite of of the um, burden of proof. So you actually have to prove that you're innocent because they come in and go, "Well, we're going to do a random audit of ten calls." And then they come in and go, well, you inappropriately billed these four calls. So therefore, we think that 40% of your billings have been wrong. Therefore, you must pay us back the, um, it's triple damages for the amount that you paid or that you billed. So let's say you billed a thousand. So you'd have to, you'd have to pay back three thousand plus an additional fine of $25,000 per claim. So then they can come back on that 40%. And whatever that was over the over the past five years, you could be looking at a very hefty fine. So now the burden of proof is on you to basically come back and comb through every trip report that you've ever built to Medicare for those five years and say, okay, here's what we build. Here's what, and you, it, the mountain of paperwork I've heard that's involved in some of these investigations is monumental. I mean, boxes and boxes and crates and crates full of paperwork. So to me, there's got to be a happy medium where they come in and go, you know, all right. You're a service that does most of the stuff right. Here's a slap on the wrist because here's what you need to be doing better and make it a teaching moment instead of a complete like you guys are crooks. And I think, and, and unfortunately, I think they look at us like crooks because of this guy. Well, yeah, and you know, oh, sorry, guys, James. No, you know, it's, it's easy, it's easy to, to put this on. To put this on Medicare, and it is a big problem with Medicare. But at the same time, too, keep in mind the state licensed this provider, you know, and it licensed all the other providers that it has DBAs with. And if it's anything, if it's anything like the way they normally do things in Houston, they all have the same medical director at the same physical address. I mean, I realize that you know. That no, no one can sit there and check everything, but when you've got a database that says you have 30 ambulances, 30 ambulance services listed at the same physical address on your records, that deserves a look. Well, one would think so. And, and that is a failure of the licensing. And also, you know, it, it's kind of funny, Chris, when you, when you talk about people manipulating Medicare and, and I mean, without mentioning any names of any companies that I work for, I work for a pretty large EMS provider. And one of the obstacles that we commonly find is we are so strict with our medical necessity, with our billing practices and whatnot, that when we go into facilities and, and we say, hey, listen, you know, we want to do business with you. And they look at the red tape that, you know, they, they have to go through for us and, and then they compare that to the red tape of some other companies who, while they may be doing it pretty legitimately, um, might not be as strict with their Medicare billing practices as we are. They look at us and they say, well, if it's so easy with them, why isn't it that easy with you? And it's not that easy with us because we do it completely 100% by the book checks and balances because we don't want to end up in a, in a, you know, in a situation like this. And you know that's a, that's a good point too. Is is that when, when you're when you're going in when when you're trying to to to, to go in somewhere, and, and my company encountered this. My company was a brand new start. The one that I work for now was a brand new startup, and we went up against several other services that were that were in our local region, and um, and, and it was the same situation where we walked in and we're like, hey, you know, we need this, this, and this, and they're like, well. 
the other company doesn't need any of this. I'm like, I understand. This is this, this is the requirements that are on us. You know, we have to do this. I, I don't know what the other people are doing. I'm not saying it's right or it's wrong, but this is what we have to have in order to move forward. And and for a long time, that that held us back because you know people want the e- want the easy road. And the easy road is you go with this other company, and there's all this paperwork magically vanishes, and things get better. Well, and and unfortunately, the state can have, and it, and it depends on state by state. So it depends on. I mean, you could have forty ambulance services, or a thousand ambulance services, licensed from the same address. The problem is, is I think that Medicare is actually allowing these people to bill. Under different business names and different Medicare provider numbers for things that probably they shouldn't be. So it's kind of a system-wide issue that perhaps the states have a piece of it and perhaps the feds have a piece of it because um, it's – it's trust me, there's a lot of paperwork to become a Medicare provider under – for the ambulance um, providers in uh, – because we recently did ours for the service that I work for and – it took, uh, gosh, I want to say about four or five months. And during those four or five months, we couldn't bill Medicare because we're going through their process of, okay, you got to add this piece of paperwork. So if you have somebody that's really savvy with all that paperwork and has some, maybe somebody on the inside, maybe they need to be looking on the inside to say, was there somebody in here that was helping these people get kind of cut through the red tape and, and make this thing happen? Maybe there is some kind of fraud going on internally, but... Uh, I'm not implicating anybody there, but I think that the other piece of it is, is that, you know, we need to look at what we do as an industry and say, you know, Medicare, maybe perhaps you're paying us for the wrong piece. You're paying us for the transport. Start paying us to actually be ready. And maybe that would solve some of these issues. And we are too transport oriented. I, you know, Chris, I know you agree with that completely. But it, it, it needs to come back down to treatment, and it needs to come back to treatment. You know, it, the, the doctors aren't completely getting paid for somebody walking through their door. They're getting paid for the treatment that they provide to their patients, and that's that's where EMS needs to head. And until we head there, we're, we're just going to continue to be misfunded because the fact is is that we are doing more community medicine, and we are doing more treatment release, and, and you know, 25%, one out of every four calls on a national average results in a non-transport. And those non-transports were not getting paid for. So guess what? Everybody who does get paid for, or that does go to the hospital rather, is paying for that fourth person. And it's, it's so misappropriated and, it, and it's so misfunded that it's, it's hurting the industry and it's, it's holding us back. Exactly. Well, and I completely agree, but it's going to take a huge change in what we do to make that happen. Because unfortunately, Medicare is based on the per incident as it is now. And I think that there are some initiatives coming down now that will allow for some kind of future ability for Medicare to say, okay, we're going to bundle our payments and pay for patients in this kind of system. And, and that type of system is probably five, six years off. So we've got to live with what we're, where we're at now, but I think that it's slowly getting better, but doggone it, Medicare, please stop. Don't, I mean, find these guys because these guys are bad guys, 
But at the same time, when you find services that are that thought they were doing it right and then inadvertently maybe made a couple mistakes, don't screw them over because man, they really are the last. They're the kind of the safety net of their community sometimes. So, you know, I I think that there has to be, uh, I don't know, for lack of a better term, there has to be some objectivity, subjectivity, sorry, subjectivity to the law to say these guys are doing it right. Yeah, they screwed up a few calls. They didn't understand the law, but we're going to teach them. And if we go back in a year and they're still doing it, then we're going to bust their chops hard. But don't don't break down the people that are really trying to provide the care now. Break these guys that are trying to be mafiosos and trying to basically fraud the defraud the system for millions and millions of dollars. Because uh, I know our service doesn't even probably bills Medicare for probably a grand total of. 30, 20 to 30,000 a year because of our Medicare rate so low. So, you know, so they come in and they go, Oh gee, you know, so now we're on the hook for something weird. So I don't know. I, I just go back and look at that and say, there's gotta be a better way. Well, it's, it's a sad statement when the guys who are doing it right lose business to the guys who are doing it wrong just because they cut corners. And, right. and that, that is, that's, that's a sad statement to the, the healthcare industry. I think as a whole, I not com- just the MS completely agree. You know, and I think the other big problem is, is, you know, we were talking about this, you know, Medicare acts on a per incident basis. And, and one of the things that always struck me as kind of funny was, you know, you get a call for a patient who has fallen. It's the fourth time that they've fallen this week. But Medicare will pay for that patient to go to the hospital to get examined and to go back. But at the same time, they won't pay for any type of preventative thing to prevent this patient from falling in the future. And you you ask someone about that, and it's like, well, the patient has a right to fall. It's like, what? That doesn't even sound right. Good point. Well, you know, and here's the other sad part, is Mr. Kimball was... Um, charged and convicted of tax evasion when he owned another ambulance service from 1998 to 2007. So basically he did it, got caught by the IRS because the Medicare guys weren't as savvy back then, um, you know, paid his little penance and then came back and said, Hey, that was easy, but I found a way to make it better so that the IRS guys don't catch me. And, I mean, this guy was doing things like he would basically con- to conceal the pro- proceeds from the healthcare fraud. He would withdraw funds from the business accounts to the, from the different ambulance companies, keeping part of those funds, and then um, basically using the remainder for kickbacks back to the patients. And then the funds fraud uh, that were fraudulently obtained from Medicare, he would um, pay to conspirators, conspirators who would then cash checks. And then give money back to the guy that was billing Medicare. I mean, talk about some kind of crazy money laundering scheme that was a total Ponzi piece. Uh, I, I'm oh, I'm so pissed. I, I this guy. I'm so glad they got this guy and he's in prison. And I hope he's you know he's in there for twenty to forty years. Who knows? But he'll be in there for a long time. And and it's a good thing. But doggone it for for this guy. I'm sure there's probably maybe another hundred out there that are doing exactly the same thing. So let's find those guys and prosecute them and, and save the healthcare system some money and let's uh, take care of the people that really need it and the small places that can really benefit from, from the Medicare payments. All right. 
Any other comments on that subject? I think that pretty much sums it up. We have thoroughly vetted that topic. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so I promised you guys to tell you a little bit about what's going on with me. So recently, um, for, uh, EMS garage and what's been going on with me, we've signed a couple of agreements and, I'm not sure I can actually name the companies yet because they're so, I mean, the ink literally dried, um, like half a month ago. Uh, but I can tell you that I'm going to be helping out a large national magazine with doing some podcasting and we're going to be doing a large national campaign on some other fun things. Those, those two things we will tweet about and I will tell you about quite a bit when I can start talking about it, but I can tell you that it's very exciting. They basically hired me on to do some fun things. And I think that I'm really excited to be kind of an MC and take part in some of their new exciting products and, 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 and in fact, just be a part of their current line because I really believe in what they do. So, um, I'm excited personally, and I hope that you guys come along with me and be a part of that. The EMS garage may or may not, um, look exactly the same. We may go to twice a month format. We may go to once a month format. We don't know yet. Uh, but we're going to try and still provide you great content when we can and still be a part of your normal listening routine as a part of, uh, EMS radio and everything we're trying to do. Also, Carissa's taken a new job on our company, and she's now with Aetna Health. So she's now gone from the overall thing that we've been doing, so it's kind of hard for us to replace her. So we're we're scrambling a little bit as a company, so we're trying to figure out what to do. Um, she, was, she really benefited um, us as an organization. She knew how to market us and um, all our best wishes to her. So it's been a crazy six weeks, and that's why you haven't really heard a lot from us. So your, your RSS feed is not broken. I can guarantee you that. It's just that we've been, we've been gone quite a bit. So um, I, I will tell you more about some of the new projects coming up in January, I promise you, but I can tell you they're really cool and you will want to watch them. And in fact, you can, you'll be able to watch them on the internet, which will be, uh, even the, you know, I don't know if you want to stare at my ugly mug for a couple hours, but perhaps you want to look at other things and, and other fun topics. So I think that'll be a lot of fun. And so that's my, uh, where we've been and that's why we've been off the air for, as Jen Men would say, we've been on hiatus for a little bit. So I just wanted to leave you with that. So our friend Mick Gunderson recently appeared in an article up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And basically, uh, you know, Scott, maybe I'll let you set this up because you, you and Mick, uh, you like Mick a lot and you understand what he's trying to do. So let, let's talk about what Mick's doing up in Grand Rapids. Well, I mean, long story short, Mick, Mick took the position of executive director for Kent County Emergency Medical Services. And um, I, I think very highly of Mick. I, I really feel that the two of us in a lot of ways are kind of cut from the same fabric where we're both very statistically oriented and, and kind of have a, an ability to look at um, effectiveness of EMS systems on a, on a statistical level and, and kind of apply, you know, Six Sigma kind of mentalities and and all of that to EMS as a whole. Um, he came out and made the comment up there and, and, and 
was very public about it, that he felt that, you know what, maybe the fire departments do not need to be responding up there to as many emergencies that they're responding. And um, one of the great quotes from the article is, a person uh, walking out their back door, falling and breaking the leg is not a time-sensitive medical emergency. And basically what he's stressing there is the fact that, well, you know what, maybe we don't need to hit that 9 minute and 59 seconds or that 12-minute response. And frankly, I agree with him. I, I, I really think he's he's moving in the right direction there. Uh, the, the county itself is looking to save money, and, and Mick is offering them an option that could potentially save them as much as $20 million in um, operating costs. And um, it's going to be interesting to see the direction that they end up going with it. Well, and I think the interesting piece for me, and, and I would love to see if we could change the Clausen dispatch system into something that perhaps looks like uh, an ability to kind of prioritize it. So you could say that any Echo, Delta, Charlie call gets a response in X amount of minutes. So you can basically break it down from there. And then if you go... So we should... as an, We're mature enough in all of this data. We should be able to look back and say, you're right. Uh, a person that falls down and breaks their leg probably re- deserves a response within 15 minutes for their pain and, and all those things. But maybe doesn't need to hit the four minute mark and probably doesn't need the, the quint with four big burly guys jumping off the, the quint to take care of a person in the backyard when quite honestly, a paramedic and EMT could take care of them quite simply and quite cost effectively. So I think it's incumbent upon us as responders, as people that take care of the public trust, as if you're a taxing entity, that's important. But we really have to take a hard look at our business model and say, you know, Medicare reimbursement's going down. So until they're willing to pay us, just like this last conversation we just had, until they're willing to pay us for our waiting time, we need to figure out a better way to uh, utilize our resources in a more appropriate manner. And perhaps this is another uh, stab at that. Um, I would be interested to see what the fire department's reaction to this was because I can only imagine how it came out. Oh, me too. And, and you know, the thing is, and when I read articles like this and when I hear rationale such as this and the, the similar one that came out in San Mateo County that we talked about a couple months ago when I was pretty much the, the cannon fodder on this podcast, um, <laughs> I, I, I find it interesting that, that EMS is so commonly lumped into the, the, the fire mentality of response. Um, you know, I, I look at what they do overseas. I look at what they do in different com- countries. And then I look at how our police departments respond to medical emergencies. And I kind of liken some of the non-prioritized stuff that we do, like that barking dog complaint that can sit on the board for a little bit and not be dispatched out because there's more important stuff going on. Whereas when I look at a fire department response, I commonly see a lights and sirens response for every emergency that they're dispatched to. And it almost leads me down the path to think that we need to start moving more towards that priority dispatch that, you know, EMD in, in some way, shape or form is, is built to steer us towards, but I don't think we're using it enough because we're, we're, we're really kind of divided. We're divided between the EMD mentality of, okay, well, maybe this isn't as bad as, as people think it is. And that 
nine minute and 59 second, we must be here in this time frame. you know, let's get there quickly to make the taxpayers and the politicians happy. But what happens then? Because at that point, people pretty much just disregard what happens after the ambulance gets on scene. Nothing else matters after there's somebody there. And we need to start looking at that piece of it. But um, I, I, I really think that if we're going to look at priority dispatch, we're going to look at prioritizing things, we, we really need to look at the response models that we use. And I really think that if we were to take a really close look at it, we would find that the response model that could potentially work for EMS in this country is, is more of a police department-minded mentality rather than a fire department mentality. I thought this was an interesting uh, article because my local – my local 911 provider just recently in the last three months had gone to a priority system in which um, uh, a priority four lowest priority call, a medical emergency, would only get an ambulance, and it would get that ambulance responding code one. Uh, and then, you know, you, then you would step up from that when you got up in the priority two and priority one, you got an engine and an ambulance, both responding code three. And we have found that overall response to the system has, has has been very positive because there are a lot of times when you know it's someone someone is calling 911 and they they realize that it's not a true emergency but it, it's the one of those situations like they always say like well we've got no other way of getting to where we need you know we don't have any other way of getting him to the hospital he fairly broke his leg we can't get him in a car we really don't want you know, an engine and an ambulance coming screaming down the road, lights and siren, you know, freaking all of our neighbors out and things like that. And and that that was the big push for a long time was, you know, you would get dispatched. We need you to respond code one. That's what they want. Um, and then we went to a priority-based dispatch system. We found the overall feedback from the community has been very positive with regards to that. Well, in our community, we we respond uh, about seventy six percent of the time without lights and siren. Doesn't mean it's not an emergency. It just means that we recognize that we don't need to um, disrupt a lot of traffic things and do a lot of things that are uh, unsafe. And I think that's the part of the safety factor. But the other piece of it is they just have an ambulance rolling up to their house that is, you know, it doesn't attract a lot of neighbors and it doesn't do a lot of things. So I would agree with you that the, the public perception of that is, um, I, I, I think it's a double-edged sword because the public perception is it's really nice when you pull up to my house. The other piece of it is they just see you going, I mean, you could be driving through, um, an intersection routine and people are like, Oh, there goes those paramedics again. Are they going to lunch? I mean, are they, what are they doing? What are they, how, how are they doing that? So are are they as busy as you think? You never know. It's kind of like the ninja paramedics, if you will. So I, I don't know. I, I guess my, my thought on that is that how do you, um, you know, what's the, there's gotta be a balance in that. So, um, uh, because I want the, I guess I want the public to see us a, a little bit out there with our lights and sirens. But at the same time, I understand the safety aspect of it. So uh, as a manager, I'm torn. Well, let me put it this way. I have two thoughts on that. Number one, I think it's a lot easier to convince a municipality to to allow you to dictate your own response when you're famous and you have a headshot. But Chris Montero's side. Oh, whatever. Um, (laughs) um, 
I no, but in, in, in all seriousness, I, I think the public perception when it comes to lights and sirens responses, everybody wants to see the paramedics flying around lights and sirens until they're parked in front of your house, and then you don't want any attention drawn to you. Everybody wants to see something done, and then when it's you, it's like, well, you know what? I don't want anybody else to know my business. And I, I think that's really what it comes down to. I mean, how many times do you hear people calling 911 and they say, well, you know what? Should, just, just make sure you have no lights or anything on when you get here because, you know, I don't want my neighbors knowing what's going on. So, I, you know, I, I think that that's where that kind of ninja style of EMS comes into play. But at the same time, I think we are currently at a real crossroads where we have an evolving um, model of EMS and we're starting to see our, our people doing different things. We're starting to see more community medicine. We're starting to see ourselves kind of evolve into more of a healthcare role rather than the, you know, the, the DOT role that we've been serving for the last 30 years or so. And we need to embrace that. And we need to let people know that, well, you know what? Just because we're not screaming around lights and sirens doesn't mean that we're not here for you. It doesn't mean that we're not taking care of people. And I, I think that, um, the lights and sirens response sometimes can be, for lack of a better term, a, a crisis thing because it's also some of it is also um, a service trying to say to their public, "Hey, we are doing something," and I think that they're just simply going about that the wrong way. Good. And then, you know, go, go ahead, James. I was just saying another thing is too, you know, a lot of times the the, the decisions whether or not to run lights and siren. A lot of times that has absolutely nothing to do with the situation. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. In my system, if you go way back in the timeline, um, it was, it was considered, you know, you, you ran code three unless you had a darn good reason to justify why you shouldn't. And the reasoning was, well, if it takes you an extra three minutes to get there and somebody dies and they found out you weren't running with lights, then the city's going to get sued. It's going to come back on somebody. And so it was, it was a, a department policy that unless you had a darn good reason, you ran code everywhere, you know, when you were dispatched to a call. And, and so I, I think a lot of that, a lot of the, the old ways of thinking that we had with with response and how we did it was tied back to that idea of well uh someone very high up says do this because we don't want the city to get sued because it someone believed that it took you an extra 2 or 3 minutes to get there when you know truthfully and in my personal experience, and a lot of people will tell you, running code in a city setting generally does not save you very much time at all. Uh, it what what it what it it causes a lot of disruption. Yes, you get through traffic lights, but you know what? If the lights red, you got to come to a complete stop. At least in this state, you got to come to a complete stop before proceeding through the intersection. The only advantage there is you get to go around some cars. Um, but I think that that's where. A lot of this idea, a lot of these ideas originally came from was the fact that we don't want our municipality sued. We don't want these kind of things coming down on us. It has absolutely nothing to do with patient care as a whole. You know, and I, and I'm not an attorney, but I've never heard of a system sued because they didn't arrive quick enough. Um, I've heard of many systems sued because they killed a person in an intersection when they weren't, when they were running lights and sirens or they weren't paying attention or a lot of other factors came into it. There are many, many cases there. There are a lot fewer cases of, well, it took you, um, nine minutes versus seven minutes. Uh, 
you know, if people are dead, they're dead. I mean, I kind of still go back to this idea that people are dying um, in our industry now because we're not doing good CPR. We're not doing good pre-arrival instructions. We're not doing a lot of other things. The EMS, the, the ALS piece has become such a non-factor in a patient's survival once they die that we are basically now we've kind of come full circle we're back to the 60s where we're just now a transport mechanism to get them to the hospitals so that we can make sure that they get done now don't get me wrong i think that there's a lot of good things going on with hypo uh, uh pre-hospital hypothermia and a lot of other things however we have kind of taken the drugs and the airway and all the other things out of it so that really all we're doing is CPR. And I don't know. I think that for the narrow margin of calls that that is, probably less than one half of 1% that we could make a very high justification. We could, we as providers can say that for the 96% of people out there, um, because I think that there's, you know, there's a subset of stroke, cardiac problems, um, COPD, other people that really need an ambulance emergently, probably four or five percent that really need that. So for 95 percent of the rest of the population, I think we could be <clears throat> responding non-emergent that much. But that's just my personal opinion. Agreed. Oh, absolutely. But, um, I'm sorry. I, I, I agree with you, Chris. But at the same time, I mean. You know, you can say, yeah, nobody has been sued for for long response times. But, you know, in, in the same breath, we, we operate in, in a society that is so driven by shock and awe and is, is so driven by litigious behavior and litigious thought and liability. Um, you, 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 can, you can very easily go on any news outlet and the majority of the stories that you find about EMS will not be great feel-good stories about how somebody saved somebody's life. They'll be, well, the ambulance took 45 minutes to get here. You know, you look at the problems that Philly has had in the past. You look at the problems that Detroit is going through right now. You look at the problems that Pittsburgh had a couple of years ago. You know what I mean? And it's it, it, the shock value is there. There, there. There's no shock in the ambulance got here, took great care of me, and took me to the hospital. The shock is in the long responses. The shock is in the poor care. And, and that is really, you know, with the YouTube society that we live in, that is what drives public perception, unfortunately, is they're driven towards the negative and people want to be shocked and people want to be caught off guard by things. Well, I'm caught off guard by you, Scott Keir, but that doesn't mean anything. I mean, really. <laughs> and, and, you know, the point the point that I wanted to make was, you know, and, and I understand exactly what Chris is saying, but the problem comes in is that the people that are making the decision on how the department runs, a lot of times, especially in municipalities, those people are have no concept of, of medical care. You know, they're the people who ultimately pull the strings are not the people who are in the department. They're the, the politicians who are above the department, and they say, you know, the, the, they have their own ideas about about what needs to be done and what not, what not need to be done, and because they pull the strings, things tend to happen that way. Uh, okay, so you know, I okay, yeah, but we, how much, how often can we let the bean counters run what we do, and the and the lawyers run what we do, versus the common sense data approach where we go, you know. 
it really doesn't make a lot of sense that we're responding to a lot. I mean, to me, it's, I mean, it's the risk manager's nightmare to have a, to have an ambulance running through an intersection with lights and siren on. It's just, it's, but, but at the same time, then they're going, well, what if we don't respond emergently enough? And yeah, I, I, okay. So have you ever been on a call? And we have a lot of experience between the three of us. Um, have you ever been on a call where seconds count? On no. rare occasions in my career. Uh, seconds rarely rare. count. Minutes. Uh, seconds well, never count. Minutes rarely do. In case. And we do things just in case. And that's the problem. And you know, Chris, this is going to continue to be a problem until you start seeing that dial 1-800 lawyer name and lawyer name to, to find out what we can do for you. And... Every time somebody's involved in a car accident, people are inundated with letters from doctors and PT and, you know, centers and lawyers offices saying, hey, let us know what we can do for you because we live in such a litigious society. And that needs to be curbed, I think, before that this can truly be fixed. And the bean counters are going to dictate it and the politicians are going to dictate it because we fail on a repeated basis as an industry to educate people about how soon they really need an ambulance. And what we need to do is we need to go overseas and we need to say to people over there, hey, how, how, how do you sell a paramedic as one of the most trusted industries or trusted professions in the country, you know, in, in the United Kingdom? How do you guys sell that to people? Because they do and it works and people trust their paramedics. But for some reason, that trust is not here. And people are still driven by, you know, the almighty dollar and the possibility of what might happen or what could have happened rather than what did happen and what will happen. Perhaps if we had an education system to back up the fact that the paramedics are hmm, educated versus trained and you didn't puppy mill them and put them through a six week course to make them a paramedic versus, you know, you know, I'm just speaking out loud here that perhaps we need an educational system that backs that up. I don't know. But perhaps also if we had a, a public education system and public information officers that were effective in relaying what we do to the public and being involved with what we do to the public, this wouldn't be as much of an issue. And I think that that's the root of what it is, is it's public education and it's a failure of public education. And it's what the police, you know, the, the, the law enforcement and it's what fire have done pretty darn effectively over the last 30 or 40 years. They've educated people. And for some reason, we cannot seem to be able to follow their lead or get together in a way where we can follow their lead. The general population still thinks all we are is a fast ride to the hospital. Yeah, we're ambulance drivers. I've had, I've had nurses, I've had nurses ask me, do y'all carry oxygen? And I'm like, really? Are you serious? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I don't want to belabor the topic too much, but I also think that it's, um, Scott, you're killing me. Uh, so I, I don't want to de- belabor the topic too much, but I, I think that it's important to understand and kind of circle back to the idea of, do we need a fire response on every medical call? What's your guys' feeling on that? I'm just going to punt it to James because I think my feeling on it is pretty clear. All right. You know, I, I absolutely think that, you know, we – that there are times when uh, to have the extra people there 
to assist. There are times when that is that is fantastic to have. Um, me working as a private transfer provider, uh, we don't have that kind of backup. We have two people on a truck. If we're if we need backup and we're lucky enough to have a second crew in the immediate area, we can get an extra two people. But for us, we pretty much have to manage with the two people that are on the truck. Um, th- there are times when a few extra hands do come in handy, but those are pretty rare. For us, again, as a transfer provider, we manage to do just fine running emergent and non-emergent calls with just two people the majority of the time. And then the other point that that I'd like to get to is is and it's just a general point about there's a there's a division between fire and EMS. And I, I really don't like the fact that people try to cram these two together into one entity because there are people that all they want to do is fight fire and there's people that all they want to do is ride on the ambulance. And if, if you're forcing them to go there and, and, and to render care, um, it makes for pretty lousy care versus someone who wants to be there who wants to help out. Good point. And I don't think I could have summed it up any better, but I mean, again, I I think that we have to take it all in perspective that there are fire services out there that do it very well. And there are fire services out there that do it because they have to. And there are fire services out there that don't do it. And I think we as communities across the nation have to figure out what that level of response is. Perhaps in Grand Rapids, it's to say that we only need them on the Charlie calls and above. And maybe in your community, it's boy, if I didn't have the, if I didn't have the firefighters there, um, doggone it, they wouldn't have care for 20, 30 minutes. So I think it's, it's community by community, but it's also important to recognize too, that, um, we don't want to inundate patients because I, I think the number one complaint I hear is why were there so many people in my house when I had X or why did you have to have so much stuff at my accident or whatever the case is? So I think part of it's education, but part of it is incumbent upon us to say, we need to, we need to take a step back and say, we don't always need to send everything. We don't need to empty the bucket on every call. Sometimes it's important to, um, let the bucket out a little bit and send what we need for the, send the right resource to the right patient. So, you know, I think we've adequately killed this topic, but unless you guys have any other comments on this topic. All right, cool. So, um, we are to the end of an hour, which is, which blows me away sometimes that we can do two subjects in an hour and, and we're still talking, but whatever. Uh, and I had like five or six on the plate, but eh, that's the way the garage goes and we know it. Mr. Scott Keir, where can people find you? Mr. Chris Montero, number one, it feels so good to be back and so good to be chatting with you again. I mean, like we were talking offline before, it's been a while. It's been far too long. Um, you can find me just about anywhere on the interwebs at medicsbk.com. That's where I'm at Twitter. If you search Facebook for medicsbk, feel free to like my page. And medicsbk.com is my website, and one of the new features that I have there, if you look on the right side when you go to my homepage, is the link for EMS Interventions, the second issue, which is targeted towards medical directors, which has some 
great articles by some of the folks at the First Responders Network. This is a completely grassroots movement, completely done on a zero budget, um, targeted at 100% content. And um, I can say for all of us there, and myself included, we are incredibly proud of the product that we put out there. And we want as many people as possible to see it and read it because I, I think that there's some really good information and some really good videos and everything there. And, um, yeah, that's where you can find me, MedicSBK. Come visit, send me an email. And, Chris, thanks for having me back. And I know where to, else to find you next to about 20 other PT female students feeling your back and massaging it, quote-unquote. <clears throat> yeah, anyway. Hey, we're, we're at an hour right now. I feel a little stiff. i got to get back over there and get cracked again. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Please don't say that. <laughs> Hey, we want to keep that uh, that 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 all audiences rating here. So I'll I'll take it easy. Oh, wow! I'm actually blushing for you. That was awesome, uh, Mr. James Warmoth, Where can people find you? Uh, they can find me on the uh, on the web at yellowrubberducky.squarespace.com. You can click the About Me link, and it posts a link to all of my various. Uh, Activities. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Google Plus by searching my name. And uh, thank you for having me, Chris. You're welcome. I'm so glad you came on tonight, and uh, I'm so glad to both of you actually for coming on, talking to me about Houston. We have a problem again. Emus Garage episode 152. I'm Chris Monterra, Geeky Medic. You can find me on all the websites, and I promise we'll do more than one of these a month because I we have a lot of fans. I Literally, I probably had 30 emails this past month where people said, it's not downloading, what's wrong with the link? And uh, I, stopped at, I stopped answering the email after a while saying, you know, they'll figure it out because it's really, we, you know, we've, we did one episode in November, sorry, but we'll, we'll try to do a couple more before Christmas and then we'll take a long Christmas break and we'll be back right at the first of January. And then I know Scott Keir is going to host for me once in January because I'm going to twist his arm. And then after that, we'll, uh, we'll see what the, we'll see what the shows show. So, uh, thanks for joining me. I'm Chris Monterra, Geeky Medic. Find me on Facebook, Twitter, and everything in between. Thanks for joining us, and have a great week. Join us next week when we talk more about issues that concern you in EMS. Have a great night. Day, shift, whatever you're doing.